Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello, it's Peter Oborn here. Outside it's a bit misty and unseasonably warm. Hello, it's Richard Heller in south-east London in similar conditions. And that we have a very distinguished guest, an erudite, thoughtful, athletic, highly intelligent, a man of many parts, wouldn't you say, Richard? He has indeed played many parts. Uh, he's been um, an England uh, test cricketer. Uh, he's been captain Middlesex. He was chief selector for England for three years. Uh, he's written an extremely important and uh, uh, insightful book, which we're going to discuss, called Making Decisions. It's a great thrill to welcome Ed Smith to the podcast. I was just wondering who you could be describing then, and I realised of my horror that all I can do is stuff it up after that introduction, so I'm planning just to listen to you, actually. But it's a great pleasure to join you on your terrific podcast. Well, thank you, Ed. I must say that, you know, most of my childhood life, the one job I actually could have wanted more than any other with England selector. I didn't even need it to be chief selector. Just any kind of, and, and the person who, who chose the t- next team, uh, and you've had that job. I'm so envious. Well, it's very funny because I suppose, like many people uh, who love cricket, I spent a lot of time playing How's That as a little boy with my sister. And then, of course, those of you that have played the dice game know that they're very low scoring games. It's typically 11 plays nine, you know, and um, but you do get to decide who you're going to be and who your team is. So probably that was part of it. Um, and then the funny thing about selection is it's both um, quite difficult and complicated, many different things to weigh up and reconcile and also incredibly democratic because absolutely everyone's got a view and I remember when I took the job as um, chief selector for England Dan Vittori who was a brilliant captain for New Zealand a terrific guy head coach now he said you know interesting decision you've just made yourself the most unpopular man in England and of course there's something in that because everyone thinks they can pick the best uh, the best team and it's great fun picking your way through all the options and trying to obviously decide on a on a set of teams that can do better than than they otherwise would have done. Indeed. Um, has it become worse becoming a selector now in the age of social media? Just more intense debates about cricket generally, it seems to me, than there, than there were in the well, past. That's an interesting question, Richard. I, I don't think it's necessarily harder because I think you have a you have a, an option as a decision maker, whether that's in sport or politics or business or whatever. You can decide what you want to listen to and whether you want to tune out and just you know cut out the noise. So I don't think that necessarily has made it harder. I would say that, and to some degree, I, I welcome this, viewing strategy through the lens of selection has become more common. Um, that's true across sport, actually. And social media, in a way, has elevated the debate because so many important and interesting voices don't necessarily use conventional media channels. So you get very, very interesting debates about selection and strategy sort of in unusual and surprising corners of discourse. So in a way, I, I, I welcome that. I suppose at the, at the most obvious level, Richard, you're right that you know, when I played, uh, one of the sage journalists might sort of raise their eyebrows and wonder if you were good enough and not too sure about this chap. And that would be quite a devastating moment. These days, there could be 50 articles saying they've got to drop this person in one day. There's a huge volume of very noisy commentary. But I don't think that necessarily has to impact or affect anyone making decisions. But one of the big changes from when we were uh, younger is that until very recently, basically it was the county game which chose selection. And I remember you forced your way into the England team by scoring six centuries in a row, something like that, for Kent, didn't you, in about... That was how you 2003, got. Two thousand three, yeah, getting on for twenty years ago. My God, yeah, <laughs> and and that was how. And so for a long day, it was a long time. It was just based on who was in form on the county circuit, really. And then one of the fascinations of reading your book is on you. You go on all kinds of other criteria which have nothing to do with the counties, uh, and it's very fascinating. As for instance, your selection of Joffre Archer who hadn't really been near in England, the English counties, and he was purely based on what he was doing, I think I'm right in saying, in the IPL, wasn't it? I mean, it, and this is this it takes the selection into new places. 
Well, it's a very interesting point. The truth is that the ideal selection system would have a very, very robust level just below it, whether that was county cricket or state cricket in Australia, which very accurately predicted who would do well in international cricket. There was a period of time when that was true for Australian state cricket. If you average 50 in state cricket, as Justin Langer did and Stuart Law did and these wonderful players who were often out and Matthew Hayden did, and they were often outside the test team, but when they finally got their opportunity, they did equally well for Australia because that's how good the state system was. The difficulty in England, Peter, is that even though, you know, I suspect there's a degree of nostalgia in the way you look back to the days when people forced their way in exclusively through county form, the gap between county cricket and test cricket has widened. Now, we might have, a, a, you know, there might be a robust conversation about why that's happened, but it has happened. So you have to take a general and broad view about the attributes of the player you're choosing. Now, the case of Joffre Ars is very interesting because the biggest selection we made during my time was the 2019 World Cup squad selection. And England were already ranked number one in the world and they had a very settled and happy side. But we did make a big decision right at the 11th hour to select Joffre Archer, who obviously ended up getting the most number of wickets in England bowl had ever got and bowling the super over and England won and all the rest of it. Now, one of the reasons we felt so confident about that selection partly because we could see how brilliant he is, he's a once in a generation talent, but also he played under huge pressure in a very highly scrutinized and public league, the IPL, and he'd been brilliant at the IPL for a number of years. Furthermore, every game at the IPL is televised, which means you get Hawkeye data. You can see exactly how fast every ball is, how many revolutions on the ball for a spinner, the bounce, the, the, all, all of that. So you get a kind of X-ray printout of the game. And it all showed that Joffre was absolutely exceptional. So it didn't make the selection for us. We always took responsibility for the selections as people, but it informed the selection very well. And that's one of those examples where you know, technology and the diversity of experience that modern players have can help. A lot of people are going to be quite worried, Ed. A lot of people were worried already about the future of county cricket. I think they're going to be even more worried by thinking that the IPL gives a better guide to selection gives more information to selectors in the in the way it's televised uh, in the data that it provides in the um in the competition that it provides the the, the quality the, the, is the, the word quality, yeah. the quality i meant to say the quality than white ball cricket yes yeah mm. yes in in white ball cricket yes that's true it's obviously you know it's a 2020 competition so test cricket is very different but yes if someone excels at the IPL it's very likely that they will be able to excel international white ball cricket. Not certain, nothing certain, but very likely. Mm. Um, going to your hunch about Joffre Archer, I'd like to move on to my trick question now, the um, <laughs> one I put in there. Um, there was a, a, um, was a player who, after 10 test matches, had a respectable batting average, just below 30. He had a bowling average of 35, taken a few catches. Um, but that was... Um, you know, that had been his, his career in Test cricket so far. Can you can you recognise him? Well, I don't know who it is, and I and I I have no confidence in my answer, but I can tell you that lots of great test players mm. had moderate starts, and I would imagine mm. that Ben Stokes had a reasonably moderate start in his first ten games. Yeah, you know, actually it was Gary Sobers, you know, okay. the, the well, greatest of all. And they used to they used to and there's a lovely phrase about him in a in a in Michael Manley's history of West Indies cricket, even even when he failed, he looked good. And well, it's sort of congrats yeah. in finding one player probably who does have a claim to be even better than Stokes. But the point yeah. is very yeah. interesting, which is that those first few games don't don't always predict that accurately. Um, Nathan Lehman, who appeared on your podcast and you know yeah. gave a fascinating interview, the England data analyst and novelist tells a story that when Joss Butler joined the England one day side a long time ago, probably eight or nine years ago, he was sort of run out of the non-strikers end in one game and then didn't bat in the next and then didn't get any runs in one other game. And yet every single person in the squad thought he was never, ever going to get dropped. And he was probably one of the best players in the team straight away, because, you know, if you were around the training ground, then you could see the, the talent that he had. So there are players, aren't there, whose excellence isn't captured by statistics in the very first sort of set of experiences and one of the challenges for a selector is when do you override statistics and say, actually, we making a judgment, a human judgment, 
see things there that are going to eventually turn into match-winning performances. And I think we can all agree was the case with so. Yeah, it's very, it's very, actually, it was, for a long time post-war, there was a run of people who scored a century in their first Test match and went on to achieve almost nothing, like Hampshire, A.R. Mil- Milton of Gloucestershire and so on. And uh, that, that, that's rather gone, but... Um, I mean, Triscothic is another you know, the, the great selection, isn't he? Marcus Triscothic, one of the most exciting players in, in the whole history of English cricket. And yes. yet he had a lot, very kind of average county record. And then somebody, he, he was spotted somehow. Well, Duncan Fletcher. And actually, going back to your first question about county cricket, and which is, of course, always central to selection, but not the only thing. When you look back at England's successful spells, and of course, they're always ups and downs. They've often had at the core the conviction of a good selector or coach who believes that there are times when you should override pure county performances. And Duncan Fletcher was the was the coach selector who identified both Marcus Druscothic and Michael Vaughan. Now, they weren't complete outsiders. They both played for England under 19s. They were both prolific teenagers. So there was quality there. But they were playing county cricket, in Michael's case, in a very difficult pitch at Headingley which was not helping opening batsmen to score lots of runs. And in Marcus Truscothic's case, he'd been batting down the order at playing as an all-rounder at Somerset. And then he played a brilliant innings in front of Duncan Fletcher's eyes. And Fletcher saw something. And he had the confidence in his own ability and the conviction to back those people. And actually, that, that was, you know, one of the things about selection that's very interesting. You inevitably get the heat on you. And that's fine. And that's why you do it. You do it for the jeopardy to to, to have the thrill of your ideas being tested. Over time, you realize that your value is when you diverge from conventional wisdom. You don't want to diverge conventional wisdom just for the hell of it. You know, Howard Marks, the investor, has a great line that just because you're a contrarian thinker doesn't mean it's a good idea to stand in front of a bus. But if you never diverge from conventional wisdom, if you always do what the average of opinion would do, you have no value whatsoever. So really, the art of selection is about finding value that other people don't see. And that's true for people in sports where there is an open transfer market like football or baseball or basketball, where they're always looking for the undervalued player so they can buy that player and sell an overvalued one. Of course, we don't have a transfer market, but we do have reputation. So if you perceive someone to have more value than conventional wisdom, you've got to get them in. And if you see someone maybe who has a bit less value than conventional wisdom, you know, there's there's incentive to to leave them out. Yeah, I do think that one, one of the th- I really enjoyed reading your book. I think it's absolutely it's really well written. And it's what adds so much to it. It was all these fascinating analogies from other spheres, one of which is the world of uh, investment. Howard Marks, you're talking about that. And you have a really interesting discussion of whether an algorithm uh, could could select a better team um, than a, a, a human being. Uh, and actually, we'll go back to our discussion with Nathan Lehman, who's so dominated and driven and really understands statistics. He almost made the case that you could because there's so much data which which statistics gives you now that it sort of overrides human judgment. Uh, and I thought I thought you left the you you didn't really fully make the case for human judgment algorithms can do it can't they now no well maybe i'm a little disappointed in myself for not having made that case clearer in the book then i would come down slightly on the different side of the argument from nathan i do believe there's great value in human judgment and actually peter i'm going to quote from a brilliant book which you have a hand in the reissue of a guide to the classics by guy griffith and michael oakshot that you know you wrote a forward to which i think actually is some very close to the the central argument of the book. And this is Oakshot writing now. There are no precise rules for picking the winner. He's talking about how you pick a Derby winner. And some intelligence not supplied by the rules themselves is necessary. Now, the point he's making there is you might have a system which can inform a judgment. So you might have a way of filtering out mistakes. And the better the system, the fewer the mistakes. But ultimately, There'll never be a system in the the chaotic world of sport, whether it's horse races or human beings, which is completely fail safe, where you can just, if you like, run the system. On the other hand, I mean, it's a really interesting, uh, Oakeshott, who was the greatest uh, conservative philosopher of the 20th century, 
uh, a formidable figure. Uh, I, and all of his books were almost unreadable to me, apart from this one. Apart from this one. That's right. <laughs> yes. That's my experience, too. You're the guide to the classics, which is not about sort of uh, juvenile and, Mar uh, and Virgil. It's about how to pick the Derby winner. And he found our level, Peter. Large, yeah, we find out, and it's a beautifully beautiful book. I still, I still think the best book ever written about horse racing. And I don't think I took the same outcome that you did, or the same. In other words, he says, ignore human judgment. All your intuitions are not going to be right. You know, it's not, it, 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 it's actually based on rigorous study of the form book and above all breeding. As, uh, 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 and the, you choose the Derby winner by overriding emotion, uh, hunch, etc., and going for really this only a very very few. If you go go by the rules, you choose it only very few horses in any Derby can actually win the race, and um, that's because of factors which are independent of human judgment. Well. Oakshaw himself accuses these types of readers of being greedy and rationalistic. So this is, in your own, this is your own preface. I've got it in front of me. Look, it's a very interesting point. I think where he's very strong, and if you like, towards the scientific end of it, if we're setting up a science v art debate, is he says there are certain horses that can't win the race. So don't bloody bet on them, is what he's saying. They definitely can't win it. They don't have the breeding. And I would agree with that too, that the filtering process so if you like, science can tell you who's not going to make it, but I don't think science can tell you exactly who will make it. I think this, that's how I would put it. And actually, um, that's particularly true when the form book, this is now using Oakshot, who's now dominating the book and the conversations. <laughs> the form book does not accurately reflect the race that's coming up. So in the case, this is very close to the heart of the matter, Peter, in test cricket which is that county cricket is an increasingly different game. We know there's, there are far fewer bounces bowled, there's far less extreme pace, and there's far less world-class spin. So, you know, county cricket is often bowlers bowling, you know, in the high 70s or low 80s on pitches that seem around a lot, which is not really particularly accurate gauge for what's going to happen in test level. So in those circumstances, you've got to look for attributes of players which will translate into a different arena. You've talked about Triscothic and Vaughan. Of course, we were always on, on the lookout for those players you know, who are going to make a difference. Actually, someone who did instantly improve collective performance was Sam Curran. Mm. Now, there's no algorithm that would have led to the selection of Sam Curran. None at all. However, we believe that, again, going back to, to if you like, the humanities rather than the sciences, if you knew about history, if you'd watched England really closely, in the period before I became selected, you'd see that one of the things England lacked was variety. So they had a lot, typically they'd pick four right arm seamers and an off spinner. Now, individually, all four of those right arm seamers and the off spinner were very good cricketers, all of them very good. But taken together in unhelpful conditions abroad in particular, it added up to less than some of its parts. So if you could introduce into that bowling attack some extreme pace, some left handedness, some surprising a reverse swing, a mystery spinner like Adil Rashid, then actually that wouldn't just um, bring merits for the individual who possessed those uh, points of difference. It would also make the whole better. And actually Sam Curran, who played 21 test matches, which is almost two complete years of a of test cricket calendar. Of those 21 test matches, the win-loss ratio was 79% wins versus losses. So Curran was part of incredibly successful England team. Um, and I think that was often overlooked, the fact that he was able to not only change games through his competitiveness and flair and strength of character, but also just by being himself, by, by having different qualities to the other players. And I think the biggest thing we worked on very hard, and of course, if you if you involve with the selection of 116 teams, you're not going to get all of them right. We've had plenty of mistakes. But I think one of the things we really focused on as a group, James Taylor, who was a brilliant co-selector, I have the highest regard for his judgment of cricket and his integrity as a person. Mo Bobat, who set up the scouting network around England cricket, the coaches and captains who are also part of selection. We stress the importance of the team's needs. I think a bad selection debate regresses very quickly to, I like X more than Y. The other person says, I like Y more than X. And then you're into this sort of pub level debate about preferences, about one person be the other. An interesting and useful selection debate starts with, 
what are the team's needs for the challenge coming up? What are we, how can we improve the team? And going back to Nathan Lehman, he always says, a good team can always be improved and a bad team can always be made worse. So you should never stop being on the lookout for finding an edge, even when the team's winning. And you also should concede the possibility that a team might have lost a little bit and you're still not necessarily able to improve it. But the, the central question is the team. How can the team add up to more than the sum of its parts? And that may lead occasionally to a player with very good individual statistics missing a game. And it may lead to a situation where players who apparently have unremarkable individual averages stay in the team. So I'll give you an example of, we've just talked about Sam, Cur Sam Curran's amazing collective team results, because of course he was man of the series in his first sort of proper test series against India, an incredible performance in 2018. We also gave extended runs in the team to three other players who found themselves under big pressure all the way through. Adil Rashid, who is a wonderful talent leg spinner, who has the priceless ability that he can get anyone out at any time. He can get Virat Kohli out when he's on 99 or 110, which is a rare ability because he can bowl magic deliveries. Secondly, Keaton Jennings had a long sequence in the, game, in the team, in the test team. He averaged 25 in that period. But Keaton's win-loss ratio was very high, partly because of his all-round contribution to the collective effort through his uh, dignity and uh, self-reliance as a person, his catching at short leg. Um, he never took energy from the team. Another player averaged 30 was Joe Denley, but the very similar things can be said about him. He fronted up against the brilliant Australian attack of 2019 in the 2-2 Ashes at home. And actually, he did an extremely hard job batting at the top of the order in England very well. So all these things are often missed in the kind of headline debate. Someone's averaging this, someone's averaging that. And the thing people often miss in cricket debate is the team. What's the team's form? What is the team's win-loss? Where is the team going? How is the team setting up to overcome the particular challenge in front of it? That's, um, I think, one of the key insights of your, of, of your book, and not just about cricket. Um, you're basically you're trying to improve the performance of a unit. That's um, right. You're not selecting the 11 best individual units and hoping that they'll coalesce into the, into the, into the best collective one. You're selecting the best collective one and the, or trying to, and the best 11 elements that contribute to it, aren't you? Yeah, and as usual, Johan Cruyff put it better than me when he said, yeah. if you pick the best 11 players, you get 11 good ones, not a good 11. Mm. Um, and that's, or if you think about Peter and Richie, if you think about other sports, the fascination of selection, think about rugby union, is putting together, for example, a balanced back row with a mixture of people that can carry, people that can tackle, people that can jack or get the ball back, a mixture of offensive and defensive threat. In the same way in cricket, you're always looking at you know, what is the best blend of talents for that particular challenge. An interesting example in 2020, you know, people will often say, how can you leave out X because he's got this average or whatever? But in actual fact, the key to 2020 is often how you put people together in the matchups against the opposition. And for example, in, in you know, we're now on the brink. I'm not sure when this will go out, but England played brilliantly yesterday in the semi-final. And Joss Butler captained superbly in the field and then led with 80 not out as the opening batsman. Now, that was a big ideological shift that Joss moved from being a middle-order player to an opening batsman. And that was probably the thing I believed in most strongly in the three years that I was selected you know, for England cricket, that Butler should open in T20s because he's the best player and you want him to have access to the most number of balls. But here's the really interesting thing. Most people don't understand that Butler's real brilliance as a T20 player is playing low risk at the beginning. He actually likes to get himself in. And then the explosive array of shots that he's famous for come to the fore, as they did last night when he won the game with a six. So actually what you want is even more explosive players batting around him so that Butler becomes almost the evolved, elevated version of an anchor player, someone who bats all the way through, who accelerates through the innings and ends up becoming basically unstoppable. And what Alex Hales has done in the last three games, which Phil Salt was doing in Pakistan series, uh, and has come into the scene for the semi-final, is, is actually scoring very, very fast alongside him. So almost straight out the traps. And then Butler's able to be, say, seven off seven. And then if Butler gets in, we know he's probably the most unstoppable player in world cricket. So that so that, so thinking about that strategically actually relies on slightly 
changing the perception of Butler. Instead of being thinking of him as this dazzling fast scorer, which he is, he's actually someone who doesn't like taking stupid risks, who wants to get himself in, and he knows if he stays in long enough, England definitely win. Therefore, the value becomes greater on those players who can score very, very quickly right from the start. One of the he when he was interviewed after the game, he made a Butler made a really interesting, thought-provoking set of observations, which was actually they selected the team to play India. They didn't select the best team. Do you see that? And that I did, very... but it's a brilliant point. I mean, I, I actually missed that. He's very intelligent, Peter, and he would be someone who who can understand thinking in terms of assembling an eleven for that particular contest. Of course. The challenge with that way of thinking, which I wholeheartedly embrace and we try to move towards too, maybe we could have gone a bit further in that direction over the three years, is that occasionally very deserving people are going to miss out. Um, but if the team culture is strong, you can kind of manage that. And I think what, what I, I saw as the dream scenario would be to say, if you've got 17 or 18 players in each format, all of whom are good enough, so then, in other words, you've got to really develop their opportunities and give those depth players plenty of chances so they feel at home. And then you can put together you know, a bespoke 11 for that particular contest. That's it's a bit like Guardiola, the best Man City team for the uh, European yeah. Cup final. Yeah, yeah. That's where you want to get to. And it's very interesting that, that, that Joss said that. Um, um, do you think there's too much expectation on selectors in general, for, almost for any sport? I mean... The best selected team in the world from the resources available will sometimes lose. And, the, you know, some, the best, you know, it may be a great result that they lost by only 100 runs against a particular team against, instead of 200 runs. But nobody would regard that as a, nobody was, is going to regard that loss as, as a success. It seems to me that um, selection is really about, it's really an exercise in probabilities. Um, there's, you know, you're selecting a combination to increase the probability of success, but it's never, it's never going to be absolute, is it? I think that's right, Richard. And I think probably the way to think about any decision maker in sport, or whether they've succeeded or not, whether they're a coach or a selector or a, or a director of football or whatever, is what was the baseline expectation? How good ought they to be? And then did they exceed or do worse than that baseline? So. You know, which football club is doing the best at the moment in the Premier League? Be hard to get past Brentford. Brentford have got no money and they're mid-table. So they've come back into the Premier League and they found a way to compete and not get relegated last year. And they're looking like they're well set this year. Now, obviously, Man City and, you know, currently Arsenal, but Man City have been the great, you know, dynastic side of the last few years, but they also have the most money. So much as I hugely admire Pep Guardiola, you'd say it's hard to know how good that team ought to be. You know, maybe Pep's added a little extra special that only he can. So in the same way, in one of the difficulties in English sport is I think we have a tendency to think we ought to be a little bit better than the historical record suggests we are. Mm. Andrew Strauss very correctly points out that in 40 odd years, England's only been number one ranked test team for 12 months. Actually, you know, <laughs> he's too modest to say, but it was when he was captain. <laughs> now, in the same way, you know, you know, England over that three-year period, 116 games, we won seven out of, out of 10 completed matches. But probably there's a feeling that we want to do even better than that. And of course, maybe we can. But I think to get to the next level, you probably do need systemic change because the most successful teams in history, when I think about the great Australian team or the great West Indian team of the 70s and 80s, they, in some ways, those selectors did have a little less to do. You know, I think of the great, they did, they selected very, very well under Laurie Saul, Australia. But in a way, they had so many candidates to fill conventional roles. So they didn't have to diverge too much from the standard template. Six batters, one wicketkeeper batsman, and then, you know, three seamers and Shane Warne. So they had the people to fill those roles. That was contrasted with, I think, the three years we had in England, where we had fantastic talent, but distributed quite unusually. We had, Brilliant wicketkeeper batsmen, lots of them, you know, best oh, folks, yeah. Billings. Too many, too of many of them. Yeah. yeah. Can you pick them all? Can you pick three? Can you pick two? You know, we, we sort of bounced around a little bit. And then we had, you know, lots of people who were very, very good seamers in English conditions. You know, even we get past Anderson and Broad, then you've got Wokes and Curran and 
Wood and Archer and, you know, actually Wood's an unusual example of someone who actually plays a little bit better abroad, but loads of, and then Robinson coming in, should we have given Robinson more opportunities earlier? We probably should have done. So, but in terms of, did we have a nailed on spinner? No, we've sort of moved around between Jack Leach, Adil Rashid, Moeen Ali, sometimes Don Best. Did we have an incredibly settled opening partnership to choose from? No, we didn't. So sometimes you have to make do and you have to get someone who normally plays in the middle order, like Joe Denley, to go up and bat and did a really good job as an opener. Sometimes you you might take a chance and play Jason Roy and, and hope he can transfer from, from his one-day brilliance at that time. So I think that the, the underlying principles of your question are how good is the team sort of naturally, if you like, and then how much value can you add beyond its sort of, you know, likely uh, level? And I think that the challenge for anyone in sport is to, is to punch above your weight, really. That's what you're trying to do, which is still going to involve plenty of mistakes and plenty of disappointments. Can I just, there's one thing I wish you'd talked about more in the book, because you're talking about how to create the best team. And this is the issue of the captain. Mm. And, um, I mean, I, I'm not going to ask you to talk about Joe Root, but it was obvious to me from the moment he was appointed, he he lacked the qualities to be a captain of, uh, and he lacked the charisma, the intellect, the personality on the field, et cetera. And yet, the, he, he, uh, yet if you look at... England teams have been written, uh, built around great captains. Illingworth, you say Burley was the best captain. I think Illingworth was the greatest post-war post, post England captain by miles. And what you have there is is somebody who's difficult, awkward, who's had a lot of experience in life as well as cricket, and, and, and is utterly trusted by his players. The, what you had was an algorithm collecting, choosing a captain, which worked for, under Atherton, Strauss, Hussein, Vaughan, you know, the, the best batsman, get, is immediately hallmarked as the best captain and then with Root that failed and you had to be sacked in the end now and and now and now you've got a great captain again in the shape of Stokes but but what I what you don't talk about is really the role of the captain and making this group work. I think it's a fascinating question Peter uh, and I would say this that I think you know, and I work very closely with Joe I have a very high regard for him and actually you know as a historical Back, you know, in those three years with Joe, the England Test team did pretty well and did a lot better than people think it did. Again, it, it you know, was six or seven out of 10 completed games were won. So one thing I would say is that as a point of principle, I don't think that teams should assume their outstanding player is captain. I would agree with you that you should always look for, you know, you mentioned Mike Brearley. You know, my dad was was at university with Mike, knew him in the 60s. And I was when I was growing up, you know, dad would often say to me, you want the best team with the best captain that adds up to the best performance. And that may or may not include, you know, picking the captain from the best 11. It may be that the captain can add so much value that the team is better with someone else. Now, I think that, that has slightly drifted out of discourse in cricket. And the assumption is that, you know, you couldn't possibly not choose the outstanding player to be, or the outstanding sort of obvious choice. Captaincy is a very strange thing in cricket. And you mentioned, you know, arguments, people disagree about, you know, the greatest, you know, Illingworth was a fantastic captain. Brearley was a fantastic captain. More recently, Michael Vaughan, Owen Morgan, Andrew Strauss, but lots of good captains. But it's an unusual degree of responsibility for a peer. You know, most sports centralise those decision makings, decision-making uh, roles in someone else off the field, the football manager or, or whatever. Cricket, the final 11 is still chosen by the captain. They say by the captain and the coach, but actually I've never seen an example when the captain, you know, significantly doesn't change that team. But the, the model you see now is that the best batsman gets it. Now, you see, there was a period about eight or nine years ago when it was stabbed me in the face that Collingwood should be captain. He was experienced. He, was, he wasn't the great, as great a player as he had been before, but he's deeply respected. He, he had a really good cricket brain and, and he'd have come in five or six 
and uh, uh, rather than a, a new untested person, uh, you know, who's a very good chosen on the basis of his batting skill. And I think it would have lifted a lot of earlier pressure off Cook, actually, if Collingwood had taken on the role. And uh, I think that cricket has lost, and in the England team has lost, an enormous amount. Think of Border or Bob Simpson or something in Australia, you know, these old-timers who've seen it all before, who, are, who will be respected by the youngsters. They and were be able both to great, great players, those two. Simpson. Well, they were, yes, they were great players. Whereas, it, whereas you see, you get, otherwise you get the situation the catastrophic tour when Flintoff and Peterson just took over the dressing room and was massively disruptive. And, and you need to have, and there wasn't the captain able to take them on. Well, this actually connects with the first part of the conversation, which is the, the value of a very vibrant county system. Mm. So there was a case, I remember, you know, I forget which transition it was from which county, but, you know, when I was a young player, just starting out, you know, there was a, should Adam Holyoke have a spell as England captain became a question. And I thought he was an outstanding captain for Surrey. I remember the late Dean Jones, terrific Australian batsman, sort of sat next to me on one of England's disappointing Ashes tours on about a decade ago and said, you know, how's Rob Key batting? Could Rob Key captain England? Because he knew Rob was very clever and smart and savvy. And he knew he'd played for England and got a double hundred for England in the test match. So he couldn't be that far away from being in the best team, even if he was just outside, if he was seven, eighth or ninth. And Dean Jones was thinking, let's get someone so who can actually captain, be really at ease with on-field decision-making and probably battle right absolutely as well. So could actually improve the level of the team. That kind of thinking has gone out of fashion a bit. And, you know, should it come back? I think it's a very interesting point. It also connects to you know cricket's unique qualities as a game you know one of the when England was setting up the system that I then I think you know I had a very very good machine that informed the decisions I was incredibly fortunate scouting network the data brilliant people giving really good information couldn't have done it without them now part of that was that was set up by Andrew Strauss and Mo Bobad and they saw that cricket need, was unique but also need, needed to lead so they tried, particularly Mo, studied American sport and football and looked at the best scouting models and then created their own one for England cricket. But he also understood that selection has always been central to the DNA of the game. We've never had a culture in cricket of a sort of supremo figure. Very rarely it's been tried, a little bit with Railingworth, didn't really work. And then just for a few months with Chris Silverwood recently. There's always been a sense that the coach is in the dressing room really leads the environment, helps the players, supports the players, and then there's a distance and you have selection. And I think there was a period of time when, you know, and I credit Mo very significantly for this, they created a system where they combined the talent ID system, basically scouting how good a player could become, alongside selection and the role I ended up filling and James Taylor alongside me. And it was both within the tradition of cricket and yet also trying to, if you like, push it forward. I think looking back on those three years, it was an extremely exciting time to work for England cricket, not only because of the high points in the World Cup and all those thrills, but actually because of the way we were thinking about how we might end up with three different formats. We wanted all three formats to be number one in the world. We got uh, never got higher than second in the tests. We rated two for a while and we did end up as number one in T20s and ODIs simultaneously, but we never got the full three. And I think that's where England cricket needs to put its ambition and see if they can get that sort of ultimate prize. I want to move on a little bit. Um, in the old days, um, Ed, a lot of players concealed important things um, from, from the selectors. I mean, players played with, particularly in their first test, they played with, you know, serious injuries. Um, and in the old days, the players are much more open now, but they played with mental stresses and sure. personal problems. And even recently, we've, um, you know, we had a, one of your best selections was later undermined by some offensive tweets that he'd issued in, in youth. Are you certain now that, uh, well, were you certain that you were getting all the available information that you needed about all the players that you selected? Well, that's, a, again, a very good question. I think you must always concede the fact there's more to know there's no such thing as complete information <laughs> but I think it was pretty good 
Um, yeah. I, I did really, I'll give you an example of how much I trusted the scouting information. So we had a network of scouts ranging from, you know, Jeff Arnold, the play, who played for Surrey in the 50s. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 60s, isn't it? 60s, primarily. 60s, 60s. 60s, 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 60s is his heyday, yeah, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Jeff will never speak to me again, 60s. <laughs> and then um, all the way up to people who are playing today. You know, Jonathan Trott was a scout. Alistair Cook was a scout. So people who are on the field right now. Now, well, by the time you aggregated all that information and it was sort of presented to me as selector, um, I've often felt that if they said someone was playing really, really well, but it hadn't been reflected yet in the performances, about a month later, you'd see the sort of hatfuls of wickets coming in. Exactly that case happened with Robinson. I think Robinson had been coming back from an injury. The, it reached me that he was bowling brilliantly and the form was there and the performances were around the corner. And then a few weeks later, you know, six for seven for five for... So I think, you know, we were very fortunate to have that high quality information. Is there more you don't know? Yes. And of course... By the way, who told you that? It's fascinating. How did you hear about the Robinson before he... Who told you that? Well, the baddies form. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that was the that was what the scouting meetings were like, Peter. Yeah. So we would be at Loughborough. Um, we would have, you know, two or three times a year. We'd have all the scouts there. So everyone would come from around the country, from whether it was from the southwest or from Durham. We'd meet sort of nine o'clock in the morning. And I would ask very annoying questions, you know, such as who do you think will play more test matches between X and Y? And if, if someone said you should pick this person, I'd say, OK, well, what's your prediction about how many tests he'll play at the end of his career? And then they go a bit quiet. And if they said seven, I'd think, well, why do you want me to pick him? You actually don't think he's really going to make it in a long time. And, you know, you try and really push people so that they interrogate the recommendations they're making. Anyway, we talk for hours and hours and hours. Andy Flower would be there. He's a brilliant, brilliant thinker about cricket. Mo Bobat, Nathan Lehman, all the scouts, coaches. And you try and get the most complete map you could of who was doing well at county cricket and whether they would translate um, to the next level. Robinson was a very interesting selection because, you know, and I say this in the book, if there are two parts to the selection puzzle, one is talent ID, which is a slightly new term that, you know, Peter, Peter you might have used a lot in your cricketing lives. It basically means how good can this player become? You know, what's their potential? What's their upside? And then selection really is timing. They're two distinct things. Selection is the decision. Talent ID is the quality. And we've discussed earlier on that there are times when selectors might leave out a very good player and they might persevere with someone who's not obviously outstanding. So Robinson got incredible scouting reports. There were actually a whole range of players doing great things as bowlers, you know, uh, not just, you know, so there'd be Rushworth, there'd be Lewis Gregory, there'd be Craig Overton, all these guys averaging 19, 18, 20 with the ball. But the scouts all, well, not all, but many of the scouts said Robinson is exceptional. And then you dig into it. And the reason he's exceptional is that his high release point and his accuracy means he'll translate very well to the test game, bowling at better players on better pitches which is the ultimate test. Because if you're bowling mm -hmm. 78 miles an hour with a low trajectory on a flat pitch against, um, well, let's just say Verenda Saywag, it's going to be a pretty you know, thankless experience. He's just going to drive the ball in the up all the time. But Robinson, with his very high action, is able to extract movement on nearly all surfaces. And we felt that he would very likely translate his average of 21 in county cricket to his average of, what is it now, 19 or 20 in test cricket. But interestingly, let's be self-critical for a moment we actually probably could have picked him earlier. So the selection side of Robinson, the talent ID side was fantastically strong. The scouts did brilliant work. We also agreed with them as selectors. We probably could have got him in a year or 18 months earlier. So that's an example of actually, Peter, someone, you know, I think very highly of John and Verarity, who was a brilliant selector for mm. Australia, said people always frame selection decisions as he doesn't deserve to be dropped. But what about the guy who deserves to be picked? Are you being fair to him? And he would say, Adam Gilchrist could have played more for Australia if he'd been picked earlier. Ian Healy, iconic Australian test cricketer, brilliant, you know, ultimate team man, fantastic keeper. But Gilchrist probably could have played earlier. So you've always got to look at that possibility as well. Absolutely fascinating. It is. Absolutely. Yeah. I, 
think I'm right in saying your final message, Ed, is that the more scientific an activity becomes and the more that there is a set optimum way of playing it, the greater is the value of innovation. The greater is the value of playing it in a different way that changes the expectations and changes the probabilities. It seems to me that is almost the entire history of cricket. There's always something happening that changes the possibilities in cricket, isn't there? It might be, you know, round arm, you know, from the days of round arm bowling to, um, you know, to, to all the technical innovations we see today. I think where, where data and algorithms are, are increasingly dominant as they can tell you the optimal strategy. And if you can identify the optimal strategy, you can also plan and defend against it. So really the battle in sport is always between the ever increasing sophistication of defensive systems. So <laughs> it's a game of cat and mouse where, you know, um, sport becomes a dull spectacle if defences get too good. Now, of course, if def defences are never happier with, than when they know what's going to happen next. So in actual fact, if the optimal offensive strategy has been perfectly predicted by the defence, it ceases to be optimal. In that scenario, someone who does things that are intrinsically unpredictable has great value. Um, and that's where great teams have always had a slightly mad streak. They might be phenomenally skillful. They might be very good at risk assessment, but they're also not afraid to do things that are genuinely unpredictable. And if you think about whether that's the great number 10 in rugby, who will always keep the defence guessing by doing things which are spontaneous and unpredictable, or brilliant playmakers in football who can keep in their imagination three or four different options, or great tennis players who are able to randomise more effectively when to go to their weaker serve. You know, I love tennis. And while I'm always in awe of the fact that the very best players are able to play their weaker card when you least expect them to. And of course, that's the art of particularly serving. But if you go to your strongest serve every time, it actually becomes less strong because it's the defensive returner is able to predict where to stand. So I do have an optimistic note at the end of the book that the, the imaginative player, far from being on the wrong end of history, is never going to be more valuable than when defences organise themselves around what ought to happen, because that's when you need the person who does what shouldn't happen. In the current setup of all these algorithms and databases, and would the most romantic selection of my lifetime, David Steele, plucked out of county cricket in his mid-30s, grey-haired David Steele, brought in to play that amazing West Indies team in, was it 1976? No, no, it's uh, 1975, it was the 1975 Australian. 1975, first, sorry. Uh, uh, is it conceivable that aged, I think he must have been about 35, He'd have been brought in to play his first well, test. I, I, I'm not sure that's as inconceivable as as you might imagine. So let me give you an example. I mean, you know, there were what nine years between Joe Denley's international debut and then him coming back into the team, and he was part of the, you know, the England team in an extremely difficult period where there was a pitches were incredibly hard and the bowling attacks were brilliant. So if you go back to the heading line, I'm not saying he did as well as Steele, who obviously was Sports Personality of the Year, and you know. But if you actually go back to that amazing Stokes test match, yeah. amazing test match. One of the things people forget about that game was the quality of the cricket the day before. So day three. So day four, a friend of my roommate at college wrote me a text. He said, day four, out of body experience. Day three, merely the best sport I've ever seen. He was a professional <laughs> rugby player. Yeah. 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 He absolutely nailed it. Joe Root and Joe Denley batted against Hazelwood, Cummins, Pattinson, Lyon. For hours and hours and hours through those afternoon sessions on a sunny day at Leeds, and the bowlers didn't make a mistake. I remember there was a conversation I had with Joe Root afterwards. I just I didn't want to say I didn't want to say anything math, you know, like that was the best bowl I've ever seen. So I sort of didn't say too much. And Joe just said they bowled very very well, and actually they scarcely made a mistake. Every spell started back of a length, off stump, just outside, no freebies. There was like one wide ball that you know, deadly hit over cover. So they soaked up those two players, a huge amount of pressure. And the next day, Australia, you know, still formidable bowling side, but they've been out in the field that bit of time. And then of course, Stokes plays the greatest innings any of, any of us can remember. 
So I don't think that kind of selection was, was inconceivable. We were always looking to find players that could help the team. And that did lead us to select people who were older, um, who were left field. We picked 19 year olds, we picked 35 year olds, we picked three wicket keepers. I think you should always be on the lookout for value that others underestimate. Um, would have been a bit punchy to, you know, pick David Steele, but um, it's the kind of thinking that, that I admire. I'm so worried now that Jeff Arnold's going to hear this and think he played, and I think I think he's 10 years older than he is. <laughs> ruined my day. I'm going to have to, I'm gonna have to <laughs> message Jeff. Edit it. Very yes. good scout. Very good scout and a lovely man. I'm sure he yeah. will forgive you. Just, you, just think, you just think of him with extra sagacity and wisdom, you see. That's maybe. right. Yeah. You do need uh, people who've seen it all. Um, he saw it on, on Uncovered Wickets, of course, and he well, performed on, on it, which is a, a, something that's disappeared today, isn't it? Yeah. Going back to your some of your, you know, Richard Peter, some of your central ideas, there is always wisdom in institutions that you can't understand. And sometimes you just have to listen a lot and know that there is there is wisdom there that you can't always completely capture or understand. And yet you also want to introduce brave new ideas that you think have value that are being missed. Now, in that tension and that balance, there's no perfect answer. Sometimes conventional wisdom and the great hairs are right when they say you're just talking rubbish now you need to just keep it simple and you know this is how cricket teams should be picked and there are times when you should listen to the people that say you know what we're doing it wrong we need to be bolder and braver now i don't know the solution to that tension other than you live with it and do the best you can and you're going to make plenty of mistakes but hopefully you get a few right as well Ed, thank you so much for talking to us. I've really enjoyed the conversation and I really recommend, do recommend people to read your book. It's it's a very interesting analytical book which links all kinds of different disciplines, not just cricket, football, horse racing, but also brings in ideas from sort of the wider world. Um, and I find it a very enriching book to read. And I think we reflected quite a bit of that in, um, in our conversation today. So thank you very much. Hope we did, Ed. That goes for me too. Uh, just mentioned again, the title of the book is Making Decisions. And the subtitle is Putting the Human Back in the Machine. And um, uh, I think you've, you did that in the book and in the conversation today, Ed. So thank you, thank you for being with us. Thanks so much. It's been a huge pleasure. And it's goodbye from me, Peter Roborn, in an overcast Wiltshire. Goodbye from me, Richard Heller. It's brightening up a little bit in southeast London. <laughs>